If you can't beat them, join them, the article says. If you can't join them because you weren't born into an excessively wealthy family, eat them. If you can't eat them, the rich that is, because they're people and that's illegal, steal from them, and then brag about it on Twitter. I had to start with the opening paragraph, not the title of this article, which is Canadians are now stealing overpriced food from grocery stores with zero remorse. As they should, I guess. This is from blogto.com, so it's from Toronto. Obviously highlighting the vast uptick, well, more than an uptick in the cost of everything, including groceries. This article is just talking about shoplifting from stores and how groceries are becoming very overpriced. It goes on to say, some are fed up with the bullshit. It seems that they're willing to risk criminal charges, theft under $5,000 to stick it to the system, or, you know, avoid starvation. Point. Good point. Dr. Sylvian Charlebois, a frequent media commentator and senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Halifax's Dalhousie University, reported this week that while grocery theft has always been a major problem for the industry, it's now worse than before after more than a year of price hikes due to or under the guise of inflation. Yes, thank you for adding that. Yeah, we were just talking about that the other day, actually, and how some of these grocery store chains have reported their highest earnings in a while. I just looked it up in a CBC article from November 16, 2022. Probably the biggest grocery chain in Canada is Loblaws. In the West, that's Superstore, and I think in the East, it's just called Loblaws. Loblaws profits up 30%, led by booming sales of, led by booming sales. I don't want to click on it to see the whole article title, but yeah. I think that's enough. That's exactly what we were just talking about. It's up 30% quarter three, year over year. Yeah. Just massive growth. Not only that, a year ago, they announced that they're freezing all their prices of their no-name brand, and that just came off. We were also just talking about the fact that they're guilty of shrinkflation. They froze prices, but they <laughs> participated in shrinkflation. Yeah. Technically, they didn't freeze the prices because they're selling you less product for the same price. Of which I had noticed firsthand. Not that I ever really noticed shrinkflation. I mean, we did that whole episode on shrinkflation, but it's actual products that I'm buying that I'm seeing are going down in the quantity you're getting. But now they're free to increase the prices as well as shrink it on us. So back to this article. <laughs> With relatively narrow profit margins in grocery, the amount is huge. To cover losses, grocers need to raise prices. So in the end, we pay for grocery theft and I guess the major profit that they're making. In the average family of four expected to spend less than 16000 on groceries this year, roughly $1,066 more than they did in 2022, which is about 7%. The food bank use spiking to new all-time highs. Some might argue that Canadians are already paying dearly for groceries of a different kind, which I think is kind of funny given what we were just talking about because they're making uh, pretty good margins right now. And I find this is kind of a very roundabout and a different way of saying that the masses are subsidizing a small number of people to be able to afford to eat. They're just yeah. going about it in a legal way and then we all end up paying for it, although it's not taxes. They're raising the prices for all of us. So technically, we are paying for these people to eat in just yeah. a very roundabout way. It's true. It's just socialism by another name with corporations involved, <laughs> which is entirely satire on my end. I, I do not mean that as socialism. This is <laughs> the shittiest form of socialism you can get. If you're too poor to afford food and the government doesn't give you any options, taking food from a corporate grocery train to survive doesn't sound like theft to me, wrote another, inspiring a now viral response from Charlebois himself. You think it is appropriate to shoplift while grocery shopping just because you think prices are too high? Crazy, wrote Charlebois when retweeting the author of the aforementioned tweet who had been responding to another response to his recent grocery store theft article. Who is Charlebois? He's the guy that originally said something in this article. Is it the billionaire he, thing? Eat the billionaires? He, no, that was what I started with. He says that basically, according to some industry data, an average site, uh, blah, 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 he was the guy that was originally talking. About oh, is he the one that was saying that it's all inflation's fault, so don't blame the grocery stores? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Okay, makes sense. Which, the, Charlebois kind of reminds me of that politician that was saying, you know, prices are going up, so just cancel your Netflix subscription. <laughs> Truly sage advice. 
Yeah, exactly. And then in response to that, Netflix made the entire company look so shitty with their no sharing accounts anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so they obliged us all to take that into account. Yeah, they did. But yeah, that's basically what the article is saying. It does go on. But I think that gave us a good conversation for a starter. And now it's probably time to get on to the real topic. Yeah, I just want to add one thing more at the end. I adamantly disagree that the entire cost of living increase that we've seen over the last year is just inflation. This is... No, there's no way. Companies reaping record profits off of the entire mindset that it's, oh, just inflation. So they can do yeah. whatever they want. Yeah, that's basically what it is when they're profiting so much. And yeah, I think we have all literally heard the ethical quandary of would you steal bread to feed your family? So I think we're all ethical pretty okay with people stealing food. Yeah, to eat, especially when they can't afford. We're all feeling the pinch right now. The groceries have gone drastically up in cost. And yeah, I agree with you. And although I'm not advocating for you to steal, I understand where these people's mindsets are. I, I think that's a good way to end that. I agree. And with that, we can get on with the episode. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe. And based on your willingness to click on this episode, apparently your go-to source for Japanese history. People usually look for podcasts who can actually speak the language of the region, but hey, to each their own. We are your passingly speaking English hosts, Taylor and Chelsea. Here today, following up on an episode that came out two weeks ago, we had a recording error. So unfortunately we have to re-record this, but it it'll be just as good as the first time. And in either way, nobody really knows. Today, we are following up on the Japanese war crimes with a bit of a history of World War II Japan to about the 1980s. I think that's the best way to explain it. I just have to interject because everybody does know because you just told them. Yeah, but they can't know which one's better. They can only hear this one. It's true. This is the best one. <laughs> it is the best one. It is most importantly, the most recorded one. Yeah, exactly. Only Craig knows the other one. I call this period the post-war Japan era, although technically it's a bit of a lie because I'm going to start this well before post-war Japan, just for ease of understanding. But there's a couple episodes that are going to be coming out in the next little while that I think we need this historical understanding of Japan to really fully appreciate the next episodes. I think this is a lot of fun and there's some crazy stuff that happens that nobody really talks about. Despite it being just normal history, I think it's something that is a fringe topic, at least in Western culture because we really like to focus on ourselves and ninjas. There's one thing I know about Japan, it's ninjas. And I think we've already done this talk on a previous episode. <laughs> so let's just get to it. Japan was a bad dude, I think is a good way to put it, during World War II. They saw Europe doing their colonialism era, and they said, hey, me too. And they got on board with that. So this is where we're actually going to start. And it's with some of the things that Japan did during World War II. Not the war crimes, just its expansionist views. And we're going to start it with its expansion into what's considered Manchuria, which is Korea. Korea and the northern part of China just above Korea, which Japan occupies during World War II. So how does this actually come about? There's a few events that people look to as to what actually happened here. The first one taking place on September 18th, 1931. A Lieutenant Doimori Kawamoto of the Independent Garrison Unit of the 29th Japanese Infantry Regiment detonated a small quantity of dynamite close to a railway line owned by the Japan South Manchuria Railway near Mukden, which is now Shenyang. The guy wanted to basically destroy the rail line and make it look like it was the Chinese that did this when it was very clearly just the Japanese army. The hilarious thing is that the explosion was so weak that it actually failed to destroy the tracks and trains just easily passed over it like less than five minutes later. Japan not wanting to actually have to put any more effort into a false flag event just invaded anyways. The Imperial Japanese army accuses Chinese dissidents of the act and responds with a full-scale invasion that led to the occupation of Manchuria in which Japan establishes puppet state of Manchukuo six months later. And then since the Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931 there had been many small incidents along the rail line connecting Beijing with the port of Tianjin, but all had subsided. On this occasion, a Japanese soldier was temporarily absent from his unit opposite Wanping, and the Japanese commander demanded the right to search the town for him. When this was refused, other units on both sides were put on alert. With tensions rising, the Chinese army fired on the Japanese army, 
which further escalated the situation. Even though this is all about like a Japanese soldier that went missing, he ends up showing up and they're like, well, screw this. <laughs> Everything's gone to shit. So let's start a war. You can't just be like, oh, there you are. Let's drop everything. Our bad. It's called the Second Sino-Japanese War. A lot of historians will actually point to this as the actual start of World War II. This is in 1931. So technically it could be the start. It's, it really depends on who you ask though. Interesting. So Japan set up, it, this is basically a colonized state so that it could build industry. It set up a ton of industry in here. And when it would go into countries and set up all these factories and supply lines, they would be run by what's called the Zaibatsus. Zaibatsus are large family controlled vertical monopolies. So it would be a small group of Japanese business people or well-off families would own a holding company that would own everything right from the mine to the place where the tank gets made to probably the shipping company that would take it to where the tank needs to be. That would all be owned by one family who would be, end up being extremely wealthy. What's that called? Is that a monopoly? Yeah, it's called a vertical monopoly. The most famous version that you would see historically referenced in Western culture would be Ford because Ford would buy the rubber plants where their tires were made. Oh. Like they would buy everything to make sure that. that they owned everything. Okay. Yeah, but in Japan, they specifically call these Zaibatsus. People got extremely wealthy off it and there's famous names that you would know. I believe Mitsubishi's one of the families that mm. owned Zaibatsus. Yeah. Yes. recognize that. So not just German companies exist from this World War II era into today and are well known. I just wanted to set that up because it will come up in later episodes, but that's all I'm going to talk about about Manchukuo or Manchuria for now. All in all, the following are the areas that Japan invaded and occupied during World War II. And this, I think it's an exhaustive list, but I, I don't know for sure. Almost all the coastal areas of the Republic of China, Korea, Taiwan, Philippines, which was a U.S. territory at that time, British Hong Kong, British North Borneo, British Protectorate of Sarawak, which is now part of Malaysia, British Malaya, which is now Malaysia and Singapore, the Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia, British Burma, which is now Myanmar, the U.S. Territory Islands in the Western Pacific, Guam, the Wake Islands, things like that, Australian Territory of Papua New Guinea, which was at that time called the Australian Territory of Papua, British West Pacific Islands, the Solomon Islands, Gilbert Islands, Ellis Islands, things like that, and parts of the Aleutian Islands, which is a Alaskan territory in the U.S. Holy crap, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. They had a huge empire that. that nobody really talks about. Yeah. No, I, I had no idea. And except for the coastal areas of China, all regions and countries that Japan invaded during World War II were originally occupied or colonized by European powers, which I think they were justifying as like, Europeans are not better than us. Asians are superior and we should be, this is purely speculation on my end. We should be the ones working together to put Asia forward. So they colonized instead. During this colonization era, area, uh, Japan likely killed around 31 million civilians throughout these Holy territories with anywhere from 10 to 20 million of these civilians coming just in China. Like, just massive numbers. That's the end of the World War II part. We're gonna skip way ahead. <laughs> like, 10 years now. <laughs> To post-World War II, to the date, August 15th, 1945, where Imperial Japan surrenders to the Allied powers. I think everybody kind of knows what happened here. There was famously two bombs dropped. I forget their names, but there were famously two bombs dropped on Japan. And they said, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. The U.S. definitely didn't have to drop both of them. They likely would have surrendered with just one. But in any event, they do surrender on August 15th, 1945. And what happens from here? September 1945 to April 1952, the allies of World War II, which includes all of the allied powers, including the USSR, occupy Japan and attempt to transform Japanese society from an authoritarian regime into a democracy. To manage Japan under the allies, General Douglas MacArthur constituted the supreme commander of the allies powers, which is called SCAP. It was a management organization of about 2,000 officers from the Allied powers, also commonly known as the General Headquarters. So two things that might come up is GHQ and SCAP. That's what I'm referring to. They're both the same thing. Try and remember. Because MacArthur had a huge influence on the people of Japan, GHQ and SCAP also are interchangeably used to refer to MacArthur and his bureaucrats rather than just the organization itself. SCAP went right into reforms as soon as it landed. Basically, they got there in September and they 
said, Kate, we're going to do these few things. Chelsea, some of these are going to sound really interesting. And especially when you look at it, like this is more or less driven by Douglas MacArthur. He's an American general. So you would think, okay, he's bringing capitalism to these boys so that they can't fall to communism. What they consider protecting from communism might not be what we would consider it today. So, okay, good to know. First and foremost, those Zaibatsus, those vertical monopolies, they want to dissolve all of them. Okay. They don't like the idea of vertical monopoly. So the, the first thing they want to do is dissolve all those. They also start drafting the Constitution for Japan, which grants and enshrines freedom of speech. They release all political prisoners that were mostly socialists and communists that were held during the wars by the monarchy of Japan. They also enact the three labor laws to protect workers' rights, trade union laws, labor standards law, and the labor relations adjustment law. SCAP also worked with Japanese leaders to disband the Japanese military and purged leaders from government posts. SCAP instituted sweeping land reforms that made tenant farmers the new owners of the land that they had previously rented. This was a huge blow against a previously powerful landlord class that had supported the wartime regime. Between 1947 and 1945, approximately 4.7 million acres or 1.9 million hectares, or 38% of Japanese farmland, was purchased from landlords under the government's reform program, and 4.6 million acres or 1.86 million hectares was resold to the farmers who were working on. So basically they had a peasant class who was never able to really gain money because they had to pay anything that they made to the actual owners of the land. They got given the land more or less and now they actually are farmers in the sense that we would actually think of them today. Okay, that's nice. By 1950, 89% of all agricultural land was owner operated and only 11% was tenant operated. So like that's pretty damn fast. That's five years Hmm. where they go where it's pretty much all tenant operated to 89% is owner operated. Hmm. MacArthur's efforts to encourage trade union membership met with phenomenal success as well. Basically, unionization was abolished during World War II. I believe it was a little previous. I forgot because I didn't write it into my script, but I'm pretty sure it was abolished just before World War II. But by 1947, 48% of the non-agricultural workforce was unionized. So just two years later, almost half of the working class was unionized. SCAP also sought to unravel the wartime Japanese police state by breaking up the national police force into small American-style forces controlled at the local level. And SCAP also sought to empower previously marginalized groups that it believed would have a moderating effect on future militarism, which groups are talking about while they legalized the communist and socialist parties in the country, which had been abolished under the monarchy. They also encouraged formation of labor unions and extending the right to vote to women. And the crowning achievement of the first phase of the occupation was the promulgation at SCAP's behest in 1947 of the new Constitution of Japan, which most famously includes Article 9, which says that Japan explicitly disavows war as an instrument of state policy and promises that Japan will never maintain a military. And to this day, Japan does not technically have a military because in their constitution, they are unallowed. Yes. That will come up later, though. So don't don't hold it up as a great thing for now. Okay. Next up, they basically abolish the monarchy. Yes, there is still an emperor of Japan. It is not what it was before, though. Japan's hereditary peerage called Kazoku that lasted for over a thousand years in different but essentially similar forms was abolished by the new Japanese constitution that was heavily influenced by SCAP. This was similar to the European peerage system involving princes, barons, and counts that were not part of the royal family. Also, the extended royal family called Oke and Shinoke was abolished and stripped of all rights and privileges transforming into commoners immediately. And the only Japanese that were allowed to call themselves a part of the royal or nobility after the U.S. occupation were the emperor and about 20 of his direct family members. This action by MacArthur and the writers of the Constitution helped transform Japan drastically by abolishing all of the old extended royal family class and the nobility class. One of the largest of the SCAP programs was the Public Health and Welfare, headed by U.S. Army Colonel Crawford F. Sams. Working with SCAP staff of 150, Sams directed the welfare work of the American doctors and organized entirely new Japanese medical welfare systems along American lines. The Japanese population was in a poor state. Most people badly worn down. Doctors and medicines were scarce and sanitary systems had been bombed out in large cities. His earliest priorities were in distributing food supplies from the United States. Millions of refugees from the defunct overseas empires were pouring in, often in bad physical shape, with a high risk of introducing smallpox, typhus, and cholera. And the outbreaks that did occur were localized as emergency immunization, quarantine, sanitation, and delousing prevented massive epidemics. Sams, who was promoted to Brigadier General in 1948, worked with Japanese officials to establish vaccine laboratories, reorganize 
reorganize hospitals along American lines, upgrade medical and nursing schools, and bring together Japanese international U.S. teams that dealt with disasters, childcare, and health insurance. He set up an Institute of Public Health for educating public health workers and a National Institute of Health for research and set up statistical divisions and data collection systems. So they basically completely rebuilt the hospital system and immunization system in Japan because it was absolutely destroyed during World War II. Okay. I took a really long time to say that. <laughs> Thank you for summarizing it. You're welcome. And then next up, this one is huge. Gap also issued Edict Number One Hundred Nine in the name of the Japanese Emperor, prohibiting POWs, cooperators of World War II, those belonging to several secret organizations. There's a ton of secret organizations apparently back in the day, not like the Illuminati per se, but like one's a Taekwondo studio, and it's like considered a secret society. But. All these people that were involved with any of these were banned from engaging in public service in 1946. So in 1947, the range of prohibited positions widened, including private enterprises, and more than 20,000 people were basically unallowed to hold jobs because of their involvement in these things. So either you were part of the war or part of a secret organization behind everything. Especially those Taekwondo secret organizations. You never can trust them. Hiya. <laughs> We were talking about ninjas. And what we know about ninjas? Yes, they're mostly turtles. Yeah, but they're from New York. Yeah, different kind of ninja, I guess. Different kind of ninja. <laughs> And then soon after the war, Scap indicted seventy persons as Class A war criminals, fifty-seven hundred persons as Class B or Class C war criminals, and of these, nine hundred eighty-four eventually end up being condemned to death, with nine hundred twenty actually being executed, and four hundred seventy-five receiving life sentences, two thousand nine hundred forty-four receiving prison terms, and one thousand eighteen being acquitted, and two hundred seventy-nine not sentenced or not brought to trial. So they actually did take steps to try to punish the worst. Offenders during World War Two. That being Scap. Okay, don't a hundred percent trust this, but okay, I would trust it entirely and just wait and listen okay. for what happens in the next three episodes. I'll be there. You will be in different form. <laughs> and yeah, those are all the sweeping kind of changes throughout society that the United Force Scap brings to the Japanese. It was a feudal system before this, where you couldn't unionize. There was a landlord group that basically ran everything, and a few families that were allowed to run monopolies basically on anything they wanted.、Mm. And they came and changed it, and they said, "Let's." Oh, and sorry, there was no freedom of speech, and it was illegal to be too left wing, either socialist or. Communist.、Um, I don't know how far that extended past that. Okay. And Scap came in and opened everything up. It, it all seems pretty great, hey. Yeah, I think so, based on what they were doing. And this pays off greatly for Japan. So Japan, being seriously devastated during World War II, lost so much of its industry. But nonetheless, with the help of Scap, Japan quickly recovers from the suffering, earning the title of the Japanese economic miracle. In Japan, industrial production decreased in 1946 to 27.6 percent of the pre-war level. So let's just say, like in the 1930s, that's 100 percent of what their output is post. World War II, they're at twenty-seven percent. Okay. In nineteen fifty-one, they reach one hundred percent. So they finally reach、wow. their pre-World War II level, and then they reach three hundred and fifty percent in nineteen sixty. So it just、wow. continues to skyrocket after that. Yeah. And by the end of Scap's occupation of Japan in nineteen fifty-two, Japan was reintegrated into the global economy to eliminate the motivation for imperial expansion and rebuild the economic infrastructure. However, rapid economic growth also brought huge issues for poor and working classes, and the struggles between the working class and capitalists in Japan deteriorated as the reconstruction work progressed. So yes, it is great that everything expanded so fast. They ran into huge inflation.、Mm. The workers not only formed trade unions, but also united with communists, the peasants, and poor urbanites in their struggle. Japan's rapid economic development also brought serious inflation. From September 1945 to August 1948, prices in Japan increased by more than 700 percent. Holy! So、shit. in three years, 700 percent, which furthered the unrest. Under these reformations, activism and with the help of SCAP authorities, nearly 
nearly 5 million workers joined the labor movement by December of 1946. At first, MacArthur was confident about labor movements because, quote, working classes are the strongest single bulwark of the new democratic regime, end quote. And the number of organized workers continued to grow from 5 million in 1946 to 6.7 million by the end of 1948. And from 1946 onwards, the labor movement in Japan began to gradually move beyond the vision of SCAP. Led by the Japanese Communist Party, Socialists and Labor Unions, Japanese workers launched a series of strikes. Some of these strikes continued to focus on improvements for working conditions and labor rights, but some were dedicated to impacting or even reconstructing the nation's political system. In May 1946, Prime Minister Shigeru Yoshida blamed radical labor movements for their misuse of democracy and reiterating that both capitalists and workers cooperate for the same purpose of increasing production. SCAP retaliation also came very soon, starting with the cabinet's Imperial Ordinance Number 311, which imposed fines and hard labor of up to 10 years for taking part in, quote, acts of prejudicial or occupation objectives, end quote, followed by the usage of police enforcement. Nonetheless, strike action continued in various fronts, and some of the strikes went well, such as the September 1946 strike, which was conducted with MacArthur's acquiescence and achieved some success. The subsequent strike in October, however, was condemned by Yoshida, and the resulting conflict eventually made MacArthur change his position completely. And in the same month, MacArthur and Japanese emperor agreed on the point that labor movements could be highly vulnerable to manipulation by political opponents. So yeah, they start to unionize, and because all the prices are going up like mad and they're working fairly hard. They want better rights. So they start striking for them. And at first, MacArthur is on board with it. And he's like, yeah, that's how a healthy society should work is that workers, if they're not being treated right, they strike. They try to get better working environments, whether that be through higher wages, shorter hours, safer environments, what have you. But eventually it starts to really strain on the economy. So he changes his mind. And he actually <laughs> thinks that might lead to communism. Okay. But for a while, the labor movement actually sees MacArthur is on their side, so they keep going. And in solidarity with socialists, communists, and independents began to prepare for a general strike on February 1st, 1947. And Chelsea vaguely knows what a general strike is now after a few episodes. Generally. Yes. But then again, I didn't get it right. So. That's true. The general strike demanded both the solution of labor problems, food shortages and inflation, and the resignation of the Yoshida cabinet. And on January 18th, the union sent an ultimatum to the government demanding that the worker demands be resolved by January 31st. MacArthur originally remained reluctant to ban the strike outright, merely issuing an informal warning to the unions and sending a document to the strike leader stating that he would not permit, quote, a coordinated action by the organized labor to provoke a national calamity by a general work stoppage, end quote. However, the unions ignored MacArthur's warning since they thought that SCAP would not violate its own newly issued labor rights laws, which say that workers are allowed to strike. On the afternoon of January 31st, MacArthur issued a formal directive prohibiting the general strike that was in the process of being prepared. And after the ban was issued, SCAP negotiated with the strike leaders, and eventually the strike leaders agreed to cancel the strike. Although the negotiations went well, leftists, especially members of the Japanese Communist Party, subsequently became hostile towards the occupation authorities. So this is all building towards something and a, a huge event kind of happens near the end of 1947. Up until this point, communism has more or less stayed out of Asia. The US is looking for a place to kind of have its, what would be a good word, its pillar to hold up and uh, kind of control everything in Asia. And they had their pick of the litter, like China's right there, Korea's there, Japan's there. There's a bunch of tiny island countries, but they're really nowhere near Japan, China, and Korea in terms of power. So which one was kind of going to be the US's satellite state for kind of pushing everything they want in Asia? It was up in the air and nobody really knew which one they were going to go with. And MacArthur actually wanted China to be its puppet state in the area. However, on December 7th, 1947, the Chinese civil war ends and communism wins. This scares the hell out of a lot of people and it, it changes kind of the direction of everything. Okay, I didn't know that because I was like, hold on, aren't there like some pretty communist countries over in that neck of the woods of the world? I guess they weren't communists at that point. They were not, no. A lot of them are still just recovering from being colonized by Japan. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Which actually leads to some revolutionary ideas coming out. <laughs> and especially, a lot of them were just liberated from 
from Europeans and then mm. liberated from Japan. So they've Makes been under sense. two different groups. So yeah, yeah, there's changes coming and they're slowly starting to show up. The change is communism. Yeah. Okay. So now the options of what the US can actually use as their puppet state changes significantly. And they look at Japan and they say like, okay, looks like this is where we're going to have to go. That's fine. As a result of the loss of China to the Chinese communists and the subsequent Sino-Soviet Treaty, the CIA and US military intelligence gained the rationale necessary to collaborate and support the Japanese right and particularly the Yakuza. Those guys are going to come up in in the next episode. Yakuza. Douglas MacArthur held a general dislike of the OSS, which I believe is the precursor for the CIA, and prevented the OSS and CIA from operating in Japan until 1950. And as a result, many of the intelligence operations undertaken during the early phase of the occupation were delegated to the military intelligence, particularly the G2. So with that kind of little middle history in mind, we're going to continue on with the story of how unions are doing. Okay. <laughs> on July 22nd, 1948, shortly after the formation of the new cabinet, SCAP asked the Ashita cabinet to pass an order banning strikes by 40% of workers in public industries throughout Japan. The order sparked oppositions and protests from a variety of workers, teachers, and civilians in Japan who considered it a violation of the constitutional freedoms and basic labor laws, and more than 100 people were arrested during the wave of opposition. The Soviet representative in the Allied Council for Japan and all non-US members of the Far Eastern Commission in Washington also expressed opposition to the order. The order was finally carried out despite heavy opposition that led to the fall of the ruling coalition, anti-American sentiment, and the expansion of left-wing forces followed. And then around this time comes out what's called the Truman Doctrine, which is, this is when people consider the real start of the Cold War. It's basically Truman says, anywhere that might turn communism, we're going to send as much money and military force as you would need. This is where they say we need a stronghold in Asia, and this is where they say Japan's going to be it. And in March of 1948, the U.S. Department of State sent a planner named George Kennan to Japan to conduct an investigation of SCAP's policies and the situation in Japan. He believed that MacArthur was pursuing a very moderate policy, and Kennan organized his own group and plotted to restrict MacArthur's actions. Under Kennan's efforts and Washington's pressure, GHQ began to reverse policies gradually. In late 1948, President Truman bypassed the Far Eastern Commission and introduced a directive emphasizing economic stability and in response Japan passed an austerity plan basically saying you can't spend too much money or you can't raise taxes too much in addition GHQ announced that its plan had a series of objectives designed to achieve fiscal monetary price and wage stability in Japan as rapidly as possible and this plan will call for increased austerity in every phase of Japanese life and remember how they were striking because prices were going out of control and there wasn't really enough food yeah I remember that austerity is not good for that what's austerity again the government not not really spending money. You can't right. go into debt. Right, right, yeah, that makes sense. Austerity and the economic downturn also contribute to the spread of communism in the education sector, which starts in September of 1948. Students' associations throughout Japan formed called Zenkagurins, and these are organizations that were heavily influenced by communism, then spread on campus, and later became a part of communist movements in Japan. In February of 1949, austerity policies ensued, cutting public spending, limiting public consumption, and reorienting industrial production towards export not national consumption. So they're already saying they're feeling the pinch at home and they're like, that's great. We're not going to build anything for you. We're going to send it all out. It seems like a good working model. <laughs> so they're basically reversing everything. This is in fact called the Great Reversal. <laughs> These policies not only tightened and bolstered Japanese economy and created a link between big business owners and Japanese conservative parties, but also caused a sharp drop in productivity and massive job losses for workers and government employees. In June, the ruling coalition decided to revise the labor union law and labor relation adjustment law to reshape labor management relations in Japan. Both were simultaneously used to suppress left-wing radicals and strengthen control over labor unions. Specifically, the revised laws prohibited workers from being paid during strikes. Increased the employer's advantage in collective bargaining and required a minimum of 30 days cooling off period between strikes and provided that unions emphasizing on social or political movements would not be recognized by the government. Japan's workers strongly opposed these austerity policies and had been continuously opposing them through strikes, wildcat strikes, which are basically when the union hasn't declared a strike, it's just you walk out. All the employees just agree to walk out. Hmm. And protests since March 1949. In April, at the instigation of MacArthur, Yoshida issued the Ordinance for Controlling Associations and Others to facilitate the healthy development of pacifism and democracy, to prohibit militaristic, ultra-nationalistic, violent, and anti-democratic groups 
and to require each political organization to register its name, membership, purpose, and activities. And during this time, the Japanese Communist Party had registered over 100,000 members. And in June, communist leaders announced that a September revolution would be launched in the same month. Tyra and some other cities were occupied by over 500 workers. So, like, there's huge uprisings going on. Yeah, no kidding. Unions are pushing, and the government's trying to crack down on them. Then comes more austerity. In April, Yoshida wrote to SCAP that he intended to lay off more than 100,000 railroad workers in order to comply with the austerity program. Shortly thereafter, Yoshida began the formal layoffs. While these layoffs were firmly opposed by workers and railroad industry unions, and numerous work stoppages, strikes, and occupations occurred. Three unsolved incidents occurred during clashes between railroad workers and the government. These are kind of crazy. On July 5th, Satanori Shimayama, the chairman of the Japanese National Railways, who had been receiving threatening letters, disappears on July 5th and was later found dead on the tracks next to Kita Senju Station. Oh no. He became the subject of debate as to whether his death was a suicide or a homicide. Uh, I'm gonna go with homicide for sure. <laughs> but this is also Japanese culture where suicide's a little more normalized. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking as well, but I feel like it's homicide. It's my feeling. Okay, that's good to know. (laughs) There were many rumors spreading around like what happened. And some of them were that it was the US or Soviet agents who had actually killed him as well. Like nobody knows what happens. Like to this day, we still don't know what happened. If it was a suicide, well played. Okay, we can continue. 10 days later, shortly after the announcement of the second round of dismissals were posted, an unmanned 63 series train in Tokyo that had been parked overnight was suddenly released and it capsized after hitting and breaking a buffer stop, killing six people and injuring 20. Police believed that leftists had caused the incident, arresting nine communists and a former national driver, ultimately did not reach any satisfactory conclusion. And then the last of the three incidents happens on August 17th, a train carrying 630 people derails. It kills three crew members on board and police subsequently arrested 20 people, most of them communists. Hi, Taylor here, editor-in-chief at Journey to the Fringe, and I am going to add a little bit to what I talked about with the Mitaka incident and the Matsukawa derailment, just so that we can all be on the same page. This comes from the Tokyo Weekender with regards to the Mitaka incident. This happens on the same weekend as a second wave of JNR dismissals of around 63,000 employees takes place. And the finger is immediately pointed at members of the National Rail Workers Union, upset at the nationwide cutbacks. Ten people People from the organization were arrested and charged with train sabotage resulting in death. All but one of them belonged to the Japanese Communist Party. The odd man out, incidentally enough, was conductor Keisuke Takeuchi, who admitted to the crime, yet according to the testimony of a third party, he was in a communal JNR bath at the time of the incident, evidence that wasn't present in his trial. And in 1955, Takeuchi was sentenced to death by hanging due to his confessions. The judge ruled that he'd planned and executed everything himself. Himself. The other defendants were all acquitted. However, in a 2010 Japan Times article, lawyer Shoji Takamizawa said that Takeuchi's confession was driven by a sense of hopelessness amid harsh, prolonged, and coercive interrogations by prosecutors. In the past, police in Japan have been accused of physical and mental torture to get defendants to admit responsibility for a crime. Many people subsequently recant their confessions when it goes to court. Takeuchi did an about turn, regularly pleading his innocence before dying in prison for a brain tumor. Night. 1967. With regards to the Matsukawa derailment, this comes from the Wikipedia page. Accident investigators found that the bolts and nuts of the track joints had been loosened and a large number of railroad spikes fixing the rails to the sleepers had been removed, resulting in one 25-meter section of rail shifting 13 meters in the accident. Investigators also found a spanner and pry bar in a rice paddy a short distance from the crime scene. Suspicion immediately fell on the Japan National Railway Union and workers at the nearby Toshiba Matsukawa factory and the Japanese Communist Party because of course. 10 workers from the Matsukawa plant and 10 workers from the Japan National Railway were arrested and charged with sabotage resulting in death. During the first ruling of the Fukushima District Court on December 6, 1950, all 20 defendants were found guilty largely on the strength of confessions forced by the police during interrogation. Five of the defendants received death sentences and five were sentenced to life imprisonment. The remaining 10 were sentenced to between 3.5 and 15 years. In the appeal ruling at the Sendai High Court on December 22, 1955, at which the defense recanted their confessions and professed innocence, three of the defendants were found innocent and the remaining 17 were again found guilty. Four received death sentences
sentences and to receive life imprisonment. The cause of the defendants was taken up by author Hirotsu Kazuo, who wrote an essay in the literary journal Chuokoron, which led to an upsurge in support by leading intellectuals and literary figures. And on August 10, 1959, the issue reached the Supreme Court of Japan, which referred it back to the Sendai High Court for a retrial. In the interim, it became public that a document confirming the alibi of the accused had been hidden by the prosecution during the previous trials. Forensic testing showing that the spanner found near the accident site was the wrong size and could not have been used to cause the accident had also been suppressed. On August 8, 1961, in a retrial at the Sendai High Court, all defendants were found innocent. So yeah, it got super messy. They still ended up doing those layoffs and that's how the austerity keeps going and it's pissing off people and it's leading to anti-American sentiment because they're the ones telling Japan how it has to run its economy and basically the things to impose. Yeah. And then they have a little bit of say in how they're imposing it. But at the end of the day, it's the US telling them how to do this. Yeah. It's also leading to fairly large leftist movements, including unions and socialist groups. Which is what they didn't want. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Well played, US. Well played. After all these train incidents finally happen, we enter a phase called the purges. So with SCAP support and advanced premeditation, left-wing politician Jiichiro Matsumoto, part of Yoshida's cabinet. Unfortunately, we didn't really have enough time to explain Japan's government system, but this is more or less somebody who would be high up in the government, but from the opposing party. Jiichiro Matsumoto was purged from Yoshida's cabinet after a vote. And in April, Yoshida pledged that he would use extra parliamentary means to combat the left. In June, employers began began re-signing labor contracts and firing workers with communist ideological tendencies. In July, along with the investigation of communists in the government, Yoshida began dismissing them. The same month, MacArthur suggested an official ban on the Japanese Communist Party. In July, the Civil Information and Education Division, under SCAP, sent Dr. Walter Eels of Stanford University on a six-month round of lectures to denounce the left and to target JCP-controlled Zengakuren in particular. So they send a fairly prominent anti-communist lecturer to Japan to give them speeches on why communism's bad. And he declared at Nagata University on July 19th that, quote, communism is a dangerous and destructive doctrine, end quote. And Japanese universities need to dismiss communist professors as soon as possible, which later became a nationwide sentiment widely quoted by Japanese newspapers. Despite the fact that his lectures were not popular within the universities, Japanese education minister Takase Sotaro secretly began firing pro-communist teachers under the advice of SCAP. By March of 1950, more than 1,100 people had been dismissed. SCAP also recommended the government to decommunize the civil service without establishing a formal institution. Five days after Eels' speeches, the government announced that teachers and professors would be allowed to participate in political groups. The activities of university professors such as expressing their opinions are thought to be an integral part as professors. And while they said that, the educational department and universities use various irrelevant reasons to force them to resign. They said, oh yeah, no, you can believe whatever you want, but that guy's haircut, man, you can't have that kind of haircut. <laughs> We're not firing you because you're communist, it's the haircut. <laughs> Obviously, it's so bad. The U.S. State Department Office of Intelligence researchers reported that 20 to 30 professors were urged to resign during late September. In the same month as Eels' speech, the National Railroad fired 126,000 workers, and in a report three months later, the head of administrative management agency said the firings were based on the law and not on a purge of communists. So, I don't know. It must be the truth. Yeah, it must be the truth. And just coincidentally, they made the Japanese Communist Party give them a year earlier uh, a list of all their members, which was 100,000 people. <laughs> At the time, Japanese academics considered the government's persecution of communists to be criminal and recalling the government's suppression of left-wing ideas before World War II, they believed that the academics should remain neutral and that sympathy for communism should not be a reason for dismissal. On March 6th, Yoshida sent a letter to MacArthur suggesting the formal dissolution of JCP. MacArthur replied that he did not have such authority, but he would not oppose the resolution if it was passed by the Diet, which is the government in Japan. In April, Eels was accused by students from Zengoku-ren during a lecture at Kyushu University of trying to turn Japan into a U.S. colony, and the students demanded that the censorship of professors be stopped. Immediately thereafter, major industrial and business CEOs announced that they would not hire communist sympathizers or communist students. On May 30th, JCP, related groups protested and chanted anti-American slogans in front of the Tokyo Imperial Palace, and during the same period, Akahata published a series of articles criticizing the policies of the occupational authorities. On June 6th, MacArthur ordered
ordered Yoshida to formally purge 24 influential members of the JCP Central Committee and forbid them from conducting all political activities or publishing any articles in journals. The next day, the order was extended to the entire Akahara editorial board. And at the start of the Korean War, roughly 22,000 public and private employees were forced out of their jobs due to their political views. The Japanese Communist Party's membership also declined sharply from 150,000 in 1945 to 20,000 in 1955. With SCAP seeing what they were able to do, they brushed their hands together and said, well, job well done. And SCAP withdraws in 1951. They leave and they force on Japan what's called the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. They call it ANPO, which will come up very shortly. And it basically said it signed on September 8th, 1951. And it's also the same time they signed the San Francisco Peace Treaty. It ends World War II in Asia and went into effect April 28th, 1952. It does not have an end date or means of abrogation. And it allowed U.S. forces stationed in Japan to be used for any purposes without prior consultation with the Japanese government. And had a clause specifically authorizing U.S. troops to put down domestic protests in Japan and did not commit the U.S. to defend Japan if Japan were ever attacked by a third party. They said, we're going to get out of here. Okinawa's ours. We're going to put a base here. We're going to do whatever we want from that base. In fact, we can put down protests in Japan if we want to, but we don't have to. And if anybody attacks you, we don't have to do shit. Sign this. That's just great. Good job, U.S. Immediately on signing it, most Japanese are pissed off and they want it redone. They want it abolished and they want a new defense treaty. I could see it. Many on the Japanese left and even some conservatives on the right were united in hoping to chart a more neutral course in the Cold War and thus hope to get rid of the treaty and the U.S.-Japan alliance entirely. The left don't like it that they're being told the way they need to think and specifically like communists and socialists are being outlawed again or have been and they're subservient to the U.S. They would rather have their own path. The conservatives also feel that way and a little bit of the sentiment hmm. of we wore this great power and now we're subservient to the U.S. Yeah. Or like this is seven years after the end of the war. There are many yeah. people that fully remember the empire. I mean, the empire is one thing, but the U.S. just coming in and being like, you're going to do this now. You have no choice is another thing. They signed that treaty. And then in 1959, the Liberal Democratic Party, which is the ruling party for most of Japan's history, proposes a new agreement that was more favorable to Japan and wanted it in place for a visit from Eisenhower that then Prime Minister Kishi had planned. However, the opposition by the Japanese Socialist Party, who really disliked the agreement, but controlled only about a third of the seats in the Diet, lacked the votes to prevent the ratification. So socialists would use a variety of parliamentary tactics to drag out debate in hopes of preventing this new treaty, the new ANPO, from being ratified before Eisenhower was supposed to arrive on June 19th. This next part is just ridiculous. So the Prime Minister Kishi, he wants to get a new treaty in place so that he can look great and have a celebration when Eisenhower gets here in about a month. With Eisenhower's visit approaching fast, Kishi really wanted to ratify the treaty in time. And moreover, the diet session was scheduled to end almost a month earlier on May 26th. In the late evening on May 19th, Kishi took desperate measures of suddenly and unexpectedly calling for a 50-day extension of the diet session. In defiance of long parliamentary norms and over the opposition of many members of his own ruling Liberal Democratic Party. When Socialist Diet members staged a sit-in in the halls of the Diet, Kishi took the unprecedented step of calling 500 police officers into the Diet chamber and having opposition lawmakers physically removed from the premises. So the LDP can't get what they want done because the other members of the government won't play along. They're just doing a sit-in. They won't vote or do anything. Yeah. So he calls in the cops and he tells them to pull them out of the building and they pull all of the members of the opposing party out of the building. So the only people left in the building are the LDP members, the Liberal Democratic Party. They passed this extension and a final shop came after midnight, just after the extension was approved, when Kishi then called for the immediate ratification of his treaty. With only members of Kishi's own party present, the revised security treaty was approved by the lower house of the Diet with no debate and only a voice vote. Basically, he did this just in time so that this would go into effect by June 19th. Yeah. And like super sketchy way, like calls on the cops and gets everybody removed so there's no no votes gonna say so that it goes exactly how he wants this is called the may 19th incident <laughs> they're so creative in this episode <laughs> yeah a lot of incidents around here 
<laughs> Japanese people saw this as shocking, unsurprisingly. So it leads to protests in late May and into June. The anti-treaty protests greatly increased in size as many citizens took to the streets to express their outrage and the aims of the protests expanded from protesting the security treaty to ousting Kishi and protecting democracy. The largest protests around the national diet, the US embassy and the prime minister's official residence of Tokyo occurred on a near daily basis and large-scale protests were staged in city centers all over Japan. In June, the Sohyo Labor Federation carried out a series of nationwide general strikes and a June 15th strike involved 6.4 million workers across the country, making it the largest strike in Japanese history. Like, that is massive. Yeah. And then there's a couple things, Chelsea. Don't laugh yet. Okay, I'll try. This next one's called the Hagerty Incident. Okay, not so obvious yet. And then, and then there's the June 15th incident. Okay. That wasn't <laughs> okay. a laugh. <laughs> so these protests are going on and Eisenhower's visit's coming up on June 19th. So Eisenhower sends his press secretary, James Hagerty, to Tokyo on June 10th. And he arrives at Tokyo's Haneda Airport to make the advanced preparations for Eisenhower's impending arrival. Hagerty was picked up in a black car by U.S. Ambassador Douglas MacArthur II, the nephew of the famous general. That's not the only nepotism in that family either. Douglas MacArthur's dad oversaw the film. Philippines after the American-Filipino War. So well, that's usually how it happens, isn't it? Yeah. So U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Douglas MacArthur II, picks up Hagerty, and then he immediately deliberately provokes an international incident by ordering <laughs> the car to be driven into a large crowd of protesters. However, the protesters surround the car, and they start cracking its windows, and they smash out its taillights, and they rock it back and forth for more than an hour while standing on the roof and chanting anti-American slogans and singing protest songs. Ultimately, MacArthur and Hagerty had to be rescued by U.S. Marines in military helicopter, creating imagery of the so-called Hagerty incident that was transmitted by Newswire around the world. Now, I actually think there's a pretty famous photo if you just type in Hagerty incident of this whole thing going down. Yeah, there's some very famous, I wouldn't say very famous. There's lots of photos of this and it's just, yeah, there helicopters. Yeah. I was just going to say the main one is a helicopter going in to rescue them. And just so many people. Yeah, that is a lot of people, like a lot. Like one you probably wouldn't just drive your car into. Yeah, <laughs> let's just drive into <laughs> No matter that. who. <laughs> and then MacArthur II sounds like an absolute dumbass. <laughs> First off, he drives into the protest and then they have all these photos and he's like, oh, this will incentivize the Japanese government to crack down harder on protests. However, this action backfires. <laughs> And instead, Eisenhower sees this as a safety risk, and they start to take this visit away. They're like, yeah, I don't think we should take Eisenhower to Japan anymore. Yeah, he seems not very brave. <laughs> that is a huge crowd. <laughs> So that happens. Ridiculous. Like two ridiculous events. And they just call them incidents. Like I'm sure you could come up with such better names. There probably are better names in Japanese. We just don't translate them well enough. It's true. But I, I do like it. I, I like the names of the incidents. They're very creatively named. And you know exactly <laughs> what they're talking about. They're very straightforward. <laughs> they are very... <laughs> There's no guessing. So next we move on to the June 15th incident. So this is okay. four days before the Eisenhower thing was supposed to happen. And as part of the anti-treaty coalition's 24th United Action, hundreds of thousands of protesters marched on the National Diet in Tokyo. In late afternoon, the protesters were attacked by right-wing ultra-nationalist counter-protesters who rammed them with trucks and attacked them with wooden staves spiked with nails, causing dozens of injuries from moderate to severe, oh including God. several hospitalizations. And just a few minutes later, radical left-wing activists from the nationwide Wide student Federation, the Zengakuren, smash their way into the diet compound itself. This precipitates a long battle with police who beat the unarmed students bloody with their batons in front of mass media reporters and television cameras. The police finally succeed in clearing the diet compound after 1am but in a struggle, a young Tokyo University student by the name Michiko Kamba is killed. So after this violent June 15th incident, pressure mounted on Kishi to cancel Eisenhower's visit. Kishi had hoped to secure the streets for Eisenhower's visit by calling out the Japan Self-Defense Forces and tens of thousands of right-wing thugs that would be provided by, I don't want to say who, but it's the Yakuza. Basically, he gets the Yakuza to come out as they're the uh, counter-protesters. That will come up later. But didn't Eisenhower already cancel his visit? I don't think it was formally. It was more so just like he was thinking of canceling it. It. He uh, was just thinking of not showing up at that point. Yeah. <laughs> 
and then things were just getting out of hand. He was like, yeah. Yeah. This is looking pretty risky. Let's <laughs> let's play it by ear right now. <laughs> this happens. Their parliament building gets held by protesters for a day. And Eisenhower's like, guys, I really don't think I should go. And Kishi, the prime minister, is like, no, don't worry about it. We're going to call in 10,000 soldiers. We're going to have Yakuza everywhere. We're fine. Don't worry about it. But Kishi's talked out of these extreme measures by his cabinet and thereafter had no choice but to cancel Eisenhower's visit and take responsibility for the chaos by announcing his own resignation on on June 16th. On June 17th, newspapers across the nation, which had previously supported the protesters in their struggle to oust Kishi, issued a joint editorial condemning violence on both sides and calling for an end to the protest movements. Nevertheless, the largest single day of protests in the entire movement took place on June 18th, the day before the treaty would automatically take effect. Since the June 18th incident. So Kishi stepped down, but nothing regarding the ANPO treaty stopped. It's still going through. So on June 18th, there's oh. a huge protest. Hundreds of thousands of protesters surrounded the national diet hoping to somehow stop the treaty by yelling loud enough i guess which is apparently a rule in japan if you reach a certain decibel level they have to do what you want yeah i can't argue with it the protesters remain in place until after midnight when the treaty automatically took effect with the treaty in place and Kishi's resignation becoming the official on July 15th, the protest movements really lost momentum. Although the anti-treaty coalition held a few more united actions, turnouts became low and the movement dies away. What comes from this? Well, the 1960 AMPO protests had ultimately failed to stop the revised U.S.-Japan Security Treaty from taking effect, but they did force the cancellation of Eisenhower's planned visit. Kishi was succeeded as Prime Minister by Hayato Akita, who took a much more conciliatory stance towards the political opposition and announced the incoming doubling plan, which is basically we're going to double the GDP over the next 10 years to redirect the nation's energies away from contentious political struggles and towards a nationwide drive for rapid economic growth. And basically they say like, look, just ignore politics. We're going to double the GDP. Everybody's going to be happy. Okay. And everybody kind of just goes along with it in Japan somewhat. Yeah, that was the redirection incident. <laughs> yes. The anti-American aspect of the protests and the humiliating cancellation of Eisenhower's visit brought U.S.-Japan relations to their lowest ebb since the end of World War II, which is, of course, when they dropped nuclear bombs on. Yeah, that was pretty low. <laughs> so that's pretty low. <laughs> The incoming administration of President John Kennedy responded by taking a more gentle approach to U.S.-Japan relations. Kennedy appointed sympathetic Japan expert and Harvard University professor Edwin Reichauer as ambassador to Japan instead of, you know, that second MacArthur who just seems like a jock. <laughs> Dude, you should totally just drive that car into the protesters. It'd be so cool. It really should have been the MacArthur incident. <laughs> it really should have been. And Kennedy should have appointed the next MacArthur in line. It's true. <laughs> Next MacArthur. JFK also invites Akita, the Prime Minister, to be the first foreign leader to visit the United States in his term in office. And at their 1961 summit, promised Akita he would henceforth treat Japan more like a close ally, such as Great Britain, instead of like how, you know, you know how SCAP and the in-between period was basically them telling them what to do. Yeah. So JFK kind of changes how everything goes. In Japan, protests spurred a new wave of right-wing activism and violence, including the assassination of Socialist Party Chairman Anijiro Asanuma. During a televised election debate in the fall of 1960, Asanuma's assassination weakened the Japanese Socialist Party, which was further driven by conflicts over the conduct of the anti-treaty protests, leading to the splitting of the Brokeway Democratic Socialist Party. Japanese students who were in college or graduate schools between 1960 and 1970 and protested against the security treaty are often remembered as the ANPO generation, suggesting the defining role the anti-treaty protests had in their lives. However, the protests had a splintering effect on the student movement as heated disagreements over who was to blame for the failure to stop the treaty led to infighting. And yeah, I think that catches you up for pretty much all of Japan post-World War II history. There's a few years from there to now, and recent things have happened. I, I will kind of get a little bit of that in here. But from that post-World War II to now, the major party that has run Japan is the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party. It's incredibly conservative. But when I say it pretty much always runs Japan, from 1955 to today, there have only been six years where they didn't hold office. Wow. Like, they are always in power. That's crazy. And the current 
current prime minister is Fumio Kishida. One of the last prime ministers, his name was Shinzo Abe. He was prime minister from 2012 to 2020. He was just assassinated in 2022. It was super weird. And this is actually why I wanted to do these episodes. There's some information we're going to talk about in the next episode. He was giving a speech and guns are illegal in Japan. So the assailant built a shotgun at home and killed Shinzo Abe with it. Is this the famous one or have more than one? This happened on TV. I just talked about one. It might actually have been on TV. This one just happened in 2022. Like it was very recent. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I'm not thinking of the same one. There's no. Another one that happened on TV to a political person, I think. Yeah, in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. It, not the same one. No, that bad I actually just talked about not that long ago. But yeah, from here, we're going to talk about the more clandestine side of Japanese history during this time. But this is where this episode ends. Chelsea, anything you want to add? No, that was a nice brush up on what I knew about Japanese history between the periods that we were just talking about and all those incidents. <laughs> The one thing that I forgot, unfortunately, to add to the script, which came up in the last episode I wanted to talk about more, was the train incidents, because there was more information. It was super sketchy how they all went down. But hey, maybe I talk about them in the next episode. I can't remember. (laughs) I guess we'll all find out together. Yeah. But in the meantime, I have been Taylor, here with Chelsea, trying to remember what we cover and what to do about (laughs) things. We are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be back for more incidents. (laughs) This is what is known as the Journey to the Fringe incident. I know. I'm going to start naming major things that happen in my life in an incident. Hi. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode.